I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, March 23rd, 2021. There's a lot of controversy over the best diet for health, weight loss, and longevity. Today's guest comes at this hot topic from an evolutionary perspective, telling us about how and why our metabolism is weird for primates and what this means for weight loss and maintenance. First, let's catch up on the news in the COVID world. the vaccine rollout is going well in so many places and hesitancy is dropping in many groups. What's the problem with moving past COVID? The issue that has epidemiologists worried now is the rise of so-called new variants. What are these and why are they a concern? Remember, COVID is caused by a virus. When viruses invade our cells, they turn the infected cells into virus factories. Each cell can potentially release thousands of new virus. Each of these new viruses carries a copy of the genetic material of the original virus. Now imagine copying a text message of almost 30,000 letters. Each time the virus is copied, that's what happens. Of course, not into a phone, but by the cell's copying equipment, which is much faster. Errors occur, but quite a few less than if I were doing the typing. Each of these errors, called a mutation, has the potential to change something about the virus. Most mutations either do nothing or make the virus worse at doing something essential but a few will improve its ability to infect a person or move between people. These are the mutations in the new virus that have scientists concerned. Because the virus relies on its spike protein to get into cells, mutations in the spike protein are the important ones. And remember that all of our vaccines have been tailored against a very specific recipe for the spike protein. Any mutation in that protein can potentially evade the vaccine. But mutations are a balancing act. If the protein changes too much, it completely escapes the vaccine, but maybe it won't be able to fulfill its normal function of getting into the cell either. Several of the new variants have multiple mutations in the spike protein from earlier events. These new spike proteins appear to have some resistance to some vaccines because the mutations changed the protein shape. We don't yet know the extent to which the new variants will cause increased infections or disease load, But one thing is sure, the vaccines can be redesigned if necessary to counter the new mutations. Professor Herman Panzer is an evolutionary anthropologist. His research, which is covered in his new book, Burn, investigates how the human body evolved and how our species deep past shapes our health and physiology today. He also examines the role of ecology and evolution on musculoskeletal design and physical activity. He uses lab and field research to investigate the physiology of humans and apes to understand how ecology, lifestyle, diet, and evolutionary history affect our metabolism and health. Welcome to the show, Herman, and thanks for talking to us about your new book. And the title of the book is Burn, straightforward, with an impressive subtitle, New Research Blows the Lid Off How We Really Burn Calories, Lose Weight, and Stay Healthy. So we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk (laughs) about the evolution of human metabolism and why we're so weird, which I just love. So you 
relate an interesting story in your book of seeing chimps for the first time mm -hmm. and being really surprised by their lifestyle. And then that led you to consider human metabolism and why we're so weird. So can we talk about that? And I think listeners will be really interested to hear how strange we primate, we as primates are. Yeah. So, you know, thanks for having me on the show. It's so fun to be here. And, um, you know, one of the first field experiences I had as a graduate student was the chance to go to Uganda uh, and to go to Kibale National Park and uh, study chimpanzees there. My advisor, Richard Rangham, um, you know, has a field site there. And, you know, I, I, I did as much, you know, background reading as I could, and I was ready, as prepared as I could be. But still, in your mind, you know, you go and you have these sort of National Geographic visions of what life is going to be like. And, of course, you know, National Geographic they show all the action, right? <laughs> but when you actually go there and watch chimpanzees, it's amazing. They're phenomenal. Uh, it's incredible. But they're lazy, right? They spend so much of their day just hanging out, just um, resting, grooming, uh, eating lazily in a tree. And um, that was a real eye-opener for me, just, just how much of their day they just spend sitting around. And, and such a contrast to the way that, that you know, humans do, um, well, maybe not humans in the U.S., but, uh, <laughs> you know, humans in the, in the sort of hunting and gathering populations that I've worked with or, or other sort of, you know, subsistence farming populations, much more physically active. So that was an eye-opener for me, just how lazy our closest relatives are. Yeah, it, it was to me, too, because I hadn't anticipated that. And then on top of that, for as lazy as they are, and the little physical activity that they get, relatively speaking, mm -hmm. they're really fit. Yeah, well, at least in terms of the uh, body fat, it's really low. So, you know, a chimpanzee in a zoo or a bonobo in a zoo, they're both the same genus, so they're both the same, uh, very closely related, uh, have about 10% body fat or less, you know. And when you look at a chimpanzee in a zoo, if you have a chance to do that, uh, they kind of look like, you know, sort of pot bellied and, and, you know, they don't necessarily look svelte. <laughs> right. But it turns out they are. And that has to do with the fact that they just are just not built to put on fat the way that we are. Um, when we look at humans uh, in our culture, of course, but even across cultures, humans put on way more fat than any of the other apes do. And it seems to be this neat evolved kind of um, reserve fuel tank, this sort of bet hedging strategy that goes along with the fact that we've also evolved these really high metabolic rates. And so, you know, it's, um, it's a little bit, counterintuitive that we'd be both the highest energy expenditure ape and the fattest ape. And yet it's true. And it, it kind of makes sense if you think about fat as that backup fuel supply. Right. And it does make sense if you think of us as long distance machines, you know, if you're going to mm -hmm. drive a long distance in a car, you need a bigger gas tank. And so we do have that bigger gas tank, although it's not very popular these days. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, so, uh, a few years after that chimpanzee uh, field work, I was working with hunter-gatherers on um, uh, my first field seasons out with the Hadza population in northern Tanzania. And, you know, it's wonderful working with these groups because a uh, hunting and gathering group like the Hadza, because they're just, you know, all humans, we're all, we're all the same species, all the same, all the same uh, folks. Uh, but the groups that have held on to these cultural, you know, lifestyles that, that are like the past offer this window into what that lifestyle was like. And, you know, not surprising if you are living in the savanna, hunting game, collecting wild honey, collecting wild plants, you know, they get about 19,000 steps a day, a Hadza adult. Um, 
tons more activity than 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 they you know, chimpanzees chimpanzees do in the wild or gorillas for that matter or orangutans. Um, and yeah, that's right. You need a big gas tank to be able to to fuel that kind of active lifestyle. Not to mention our big brains and we have big babies and you know a lot about human life is expensive in terms of calories and uh, th those high metabolic rates do it all. Right. And so I want to come back to your studies of the Hadza because you did some remarkably sophisticated experiments mm -hmm. in a pretty primitive environment. But before we get there, let's traverse that pathway of human evolution from our chimp-like ancestors to sure. the hunter-gatherers and ask the question, what were the factors that led us to evolve this outlier kind of metabolism? Yeah, yeah. So um, humans, uh, our lineage splits from the chimpanzee and bonobo lineage. They hadn't separated yet. Uh, about 7 million years ago or so, there's, a, you know, people argue about, is it seven or was it eight or was it six? About 7 million years ago. And, you know, for the first, oh, four or 5 million years of our evolution, uh, our ancestors uh, are bipedal, walking on two legs. But brain size isn't a whole lot different than chimpanzee brain size. And diet, as far as you can tell, isn't a whole lot different than other ape diets. It's very, um, very plant-based. Uh, and so, you know, so if you're familiar with things like, uh, like the Lucy skeleton, for example, is part of this genus called Australopithecus that was really uh, common and widespread, did very well uh, between about four and two million years ago, that, that genus. Anyway, these are bipedal two-legged apes, basically for five million years. And then around two and a half million years, two million years ago, uh, we begin to see the, this sort of evidence that, that things are changing. And what's changing seems to be the way that we're getting our food. Uh, so you begin to see more the beginnings of stone tools. You begin to see uh, the beginnings of, of, of butchered bones. So butchered animal bones in the same fossil layers that we're finding you know, our ancestors in. And we're finding these butchered bones, cut marks on bones. Uh, brain size begins to tick up, right? Tooth size begins to, to come down. So the, this is all pointing toward a change in the way that we're getting our food. That is also, by the way, um, the beginnings of our genus. We look at those fossils uh, of, our, of our lineage and we say, oh, those, those are the earliest things, like Homo habilis, for example, you might've heard of it before, that, that look enough like us that we think that they're more, you know, we're, we'll put those in our genus, in our group. And so those are the earliest members of the genus Homo. And it all has to do with how you're getting your food. And the key is, it's the beginning of hunting and gathering. And of course, hunting and gathering is amazing because it's, you know, we're the only species, hunting and gathering is the only uh, species approach I can think of, certainly the only primate uh, or mammal approach that you have half of the group that does, you know, that gets one kind of food, half the group gets another kind of food. And at the end of the day, they share it all together. I mean, that is completely unlike anything else that we see across primates, across mammals. And that hunting and gathering, sharing approach, right, kind of increases the amount of energy that we can depend on getting every day. And now you see the floodgates open and brain sizes increase and activity levels increase. And we begin to see that sort of two and a half million year journey of our genus, the genus Homo, in this hunting and gathering strategy. Yeah, I love it that you focus on sharing as a big factor in our evolution, because it mm -hmm. reflects kind of a growing attitude in ecology in general, that cooperation is really important. And it seems like people are really 
um, love to hang on to this idea of nature red in tooth and claw and competition yeah. and, yeah. you know, survival of the fittest and it's a struggle for existence. And in fact, in so many different species and ecosystems, there's lots of cooperation mm -hmm. and you illustrate um, very touchingly how the Hadza share everything. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's uh, the kind of the first thing you learn when you go into a Hadza camp is that uh, sharing is the rule, right? You have to share. And in fact, in the Hadza language, you know, they have a word for please you know, forgive, give me, it's za is the word forgive. Um, they don't have this immediate sort of knee jerk reaction to say thank you, or even to say please, right? And it, it really shook me at first. I was like, you know, giving is so important. Sharing is so important. How come they don't have, you know, the magic words, please and thank you. And of course they have the concepts and they, they do, they are able to state, they do say thank you and please for different things, but it isn't sort of, you know, the drilled into you, please and thank you that we all had growing up in the States. Um, and then they begin to realize, oh, that's because it is so ingrained in them that you have to share, that that is just part of life, that it would be sort of strange and artificial to say please and thank you because it would it would assume that you might not share right, <laughs> right I mean, the reason we say right. please and thank you is because some, we feel like somebody's going out of their way um, but sharing is such a part of life there that it's not going out of your way to share that's just sort of being human uh, and i love that about it um, right yeah, yeah yeah so you did a real groundbreaking study with the hadza you did a very sophisticated radioisotope labeling study to mm -hmm. determine their energy expenditure going into it with i guess the hypothesis that wow these guys run all over all day they must be burning a lot more energy and you found yeah. some very counterintuitive results. So can you describe how you do the study and sure. what your results were? Yeah, so the technique, so nobody had ever measured daily energy expenditures, all the calories you burn every day in a hunting and gathering uh, population, never been done. And that's because until recently, we haven't had the methods to do it. Most of the ways that you measure energy expenditure, you know, you need to either capture oxygen and e capture expired air to measure oxygen uh, intake and, and carbon dioxide production. Okay. Only in the last couple of decades have we even had the technology to do energy expenditures outside the lab. And the way you do it is this, you use um, what's called the doubly labeled water technique. And it's stable isotopes. So it's not radioactive. It's stable isotopes of hydrogen and oxygen. And we can use those to trace the movement of hydrogen ox and oxygen through your body. So you, you get water that's enriched with deuterium, which that's our isotope of hydrogen, or oxygen 18, which is our isotope of, of oxygen. You drink that, um, and over several days after that, about a week, we get a urine sample every now and then, and we can watch your body kind of flush those isotopes out. Again, they're kind of like, like food coloring, like tracers. Now, you, you, wash the, you, you flush the hydrogen isotope out with all the water that you lose, because of course, water is H2O. You flush the oxygen isotope out with the water that you lose, H2O, but also with the CO2 that you breathe out. Because it turns out that ever about, about half of the O's in the CO2 that you exhale come from your body water, which is interesting. I didn't know that before I learned about this technique. It's, it's kind of a cool bit of biochemistry. And so by watching though, you flush those two isotopes out, we can actually do the algebra and figure out, oh, okay, that's how much carbon dioxide your body's producing every day. And that's a very nice, precise measure of how many calories you're burning every day. And it's about a week long measurement. So it's not just a day or even just two days. It's like a nice snapshot of, of, 
of life for somebody. Ten, you know, so seven I'm, to ten I'm going to stop you for just a second. For the listeners that aren't familiar with some of the finer points of um, energy metabolism, we're tracking the oxygen and the hydrogen because these are breakdown products of foods. And so when you burn food for energy, you can track how much food is being burned and how much energy your body is therefore extracting to utilize by tracking these two simple atoms. That's right. You can't make, so you know, you're familiar with it, I, that you breathe out carbon dioxide when you breathe out, you're probably familiar with that. That carbon is actually the carbon that came in in your food. So you, in, you eat all this carbon-based food and you exhale the carbon back out when you exhale carbon dioxide. And the oxygen that goes along with that is also, like you say, part of that process of, of turning those food molecules into energy. Uh, and so if we can track your CO2 production, we can track how many calories you're burning because you can't make CO2 without burning calories. You can't burn calories without making CO2. Right. And so you convinced the Hadza to... <laughs> Uh, cooperate with you in this experiment was that difficult to do i have to say it's not difficult uh the, first of all um you don't sort of parachute into a, par a population like this you know I, I have colleagues who have worked with the hadza for for decades literally you know their their advisors worked with the hadza their advisors worked with the hadza so um these are long-term friendships you know partnerships and uh the hadza also are just they're incredibly generous, nice folks. And, um, you know, we, we respect them and we make it a two-way street. We try to, you know, we compensate them for the time like you would if you had a, a human subjects study here in the US, right? We compensate the people who participate um, and we compensate them too. And so um, it's all built on mutual respect and trust. And uh, because of that, they've always been really great partners in all of this work. Yeah, I would highly recommend to the listeners to read the book because you have so many wonderful stories of living with them and interacting with them. Mm -hmm. But let's go on. You So you collected their pee and um, measured these isotopes. <laughs> yeah. And what did you find? Yeah. So again, like you said, we expected people, the, the Hadza men and women to be burning lots more energy every day than we do here in the West. Um, that was actually how we, we built that's how we wrote the grant application to NSF <laughs> to go and do this work was we're going to have, we're going to come back with these really high energy expenditure totals. Um, and instead, total shocker, they have this exactly the same energy expenditures as men and women in the US and Europe and, and other industrialized populations. And so it was a total game changer for me and ended up really kind of changing the way we think about uh, metabolism more broadly for our species that, that, you know, lifestyle doesn't have as big of, a, of an effect on expenditure as we think it does. Yeah, that was really remarkable to think that natural selection has, I don't know if optimized is the right term, but certainly driven our species to a specific energy expenditure. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, basically what this is telling us is that your daily energy expenditure has a lot more to do with your evolutionary history than it does with your lifestyle. Um, so, you know, back to the, to the apes, we see the same thing in zoos. If you look at a primate, um, there's been several examples of this now. We measure, uh, for example, ring-tailed lemurs here at the, at the Duke Lemur Center. We measure them, their daily energy expenditures here at the lemur center. And people have done those same exact kind of measurements, exact same methods in the wild of Madagascar, same energy expenditures, right? And that's, uh, we see that again and again, that, that being in a more sedentary lifestyle doesn't end up meaning that you spend fewer calories. Instead, it, it must be changing the way that we spend those calories. Right. And I found that fascinating to think about how all those 
um, I think of them as bins of mm -hmm. energy expenditure, like reproduction, tissue mm -hmm. maintenance, growth, you have a certain amount. And so if you're overusing one, some of the other ones are going to have to compensate by dropping down. Mm -hmm. So um, you go on to talk in your book about some of the myths that we have about losing weight, because we tend to think, oh, just burn more calories, but it's not that simple. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that, too. Yeah, I mean, you know, I never got into this work uh, <laughs> with any plans on, on uh, you know, telling anybody how to exercise or diet. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm an anthropologist. That was I was trying to understand how the body works. Um, but it turns out it ends up being really relevant to that whole discussion about overweight and obesity, because, you know, what you find when you do the kind of work we've done is it's really hard to push the energy expenditure side of the equation uh, anywhere, right? You can, when you gain weight, it has to be because you're bringing more energy in than you're burning off. I mean, that's, that's the physics of it. Uh, and so then, you know, what, what's your energy balance? How much energy are you bringing in? How much energy are you, are you burning off? And, you know, in public health, we are, we're, people are, are telling us all the time, oh, if you want to watch your weight, then just burn more energy off by, by being more active. Well, if it doesn't really work that way, right? If you can't really change how many calories you burn off every day, uh, well, we have to change the message. Um, and so this points to, you know, our work points to this sort of even larger body of work in nutrition science and, and, and exercise science that says, exercise is really good for you. All those metabolic adjustments it makes you do are good for you. But if you wanna watch your weight, you've gotta watch your diet. Yeah, and I thought it was great that you had a very scientific focus because this is something that's that's troubled me in the last oh i don't know five or ten years that people have been talking about human metabolism and diet you know this idea that a calorie is not a calorie that if you eat a calorie from fat it's different than a calorie from sugar and yeah. so i was i was just delighted to see you come back to some basic energy science saying yeah guys, a calorie is a calorie really <laughs> yeah i know i mean it's i think anybody who works in this field of energetics metabolism just kind of rolls your eyes when you hear, oh, well, you know, not all calories are the same. And it's like, well, wait, you know, that's like saying not all killing, you know, is a, is a pound of feathers or a pound of, uh, <laughs> or a pound of gold, right. but which one weighs more? Right. And you think, well, <laughs> wait a second, you know, um, now that's not to say that all food has the same effects on our bodies and nobody ever thought that I don't think. Um, but right. So, so that was the idea here is to try to inject some science back into the debate. Um, I was tired of going to the bookstore and just, you know, perusing the science section for fun and opening up whatever book says metabolism on the cover. And there's no metabolism in there, right? There's like, it's totally devoid of any of real science. And so hopefully this, this gets it back into the conversation. Right. And so for the listener, there are a lot of studies that you cite showing the effects of different food and mm -hmm. um, comparing how different diets work. So we won't go into that. But the one final point I want to touch on that I found fascinating was you talked about really high level endurance activities and how yeah. these are a little bit different in terms of how they affect the metabolism, things like the Tour de France or yeah. the Race Across America, because they're so extreme. And I loved it that you included pregnancy as uh, <laughs> yeah. an endurance event, because I can completely relate to that. So could you talk a little bit about those kinds of, of, of events sure. and their effect on the body? Sure, sure. So every time, you know, whenever I would talk about, uh, you know, how it seems to be the case that the lifestyle doesn't really affect expenditure, and no matter how you live your life, you burn, you know, 2,500 calories a day or so. Um, whenever I'd give that talk, or people would say, well, what about Michael Phelps, right? What about these sort of France? How do you, how do you explain that? 
smart guy. <laughs> um, and it was a really good point. Cause of course we know that there are athletes that are really burning tons of calories, at least during, you know, over certain periods of training and that kind of thing. Um, and I thought, well, I guess it's a good question. I don't really know how to deal with it. Um, and then we got invited to be part of this ridiculously cool study where, um, people ran a marathon a day from Los Angeles to Washington, DC, uh, over five months. It was just, com you know, completely, uh, ridiculous. This, this, uh, event it's so impressive. Um, and you know, they, they had a science team along with this, this race across the USA. And so, you know, we, we joined along as, as the energy expenditure measures for this. Uh, and we found that, um, you know, people, they, you can burn more than 2,500 calories a day for a while. Uh, and in fact, you know, when you compare the folks that ran across the USA to people on the Tour de France, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You know, Kona Ironman triathletes. Yeah. You can burn thousands of calories a day. You can be Michael Phelps for a while, but what happens is if you take those measurements and you plot how many calories a day do you burn versus how long can you maintain it for? Uh, then you begin to understand it's kind of like, um, there's, a, there's this very clear ceiling of metabolic expenditure. You can do a lot for a very short amount of time, but as the duration gets longer and longer, that limit goes down, down, down. And so I ended up scouring the literature. What, what's, the, what's the longest duration, highest energy thing I could find? And for humans, that's pregnancy. And, and pregnancy puts you right on that same metabolic limit, that same metabolic ceiling as the Tour de France and as a Kona Iron tri Ironman triathlon. Um, and so those are the metabolic limits. And, and in fact, the same metabolic machinery that limits the Tour de France uh, is probably also limiting pregnancy. Isn't that kind of cool? It's it's very cool. And I wish we could talk some more about it, but we are out of time. And I want to thank you so much and wish you good luck with your book. And I will link to your book website in our show notes. Thank you so much. It's fun to have uh, the conversation. That was Herman Ponzer speaking to me about his new book, Burn, a deep dive into how the human body evolved and how our species' deep past shapes our health and physiology. His writing includes fascinating glimpses into both field projects in small-scale societies, including hunter-gatherers and subsistence farmers, in Africa and South America, as well as lab research on energetics and metabolism. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I'm the current executive producer, and I produced this week's show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Philippa Sue, writing for the Hamilton Score. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.